adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. It's great to have everybody back again, Austin. I'm super thrilled about our guest today. Yeah, it's it's been a while since we've had somebody on. It feels like it's been you and I for just the, the last few weeks, just because we've been so incredibly busy with trainings, traveling, work, uh, everything. So in saying that, man, uh, let's jump right in, introduce our guest. And I'm excited to hear about a story. Uh, you speak very highly of him. And uh, if you speak very highly of him, he might or might not be a good person. I don't know. That, that is a good evaluation of me. Has no bearing on uh, Holger whatsoever. Chief uh, Holger Dure of Prescott, Arizona Fire Department. And just a quick backstory on Chief Dure. Holger and I got introduced to each other by a mutual friend who actually said, hey, I think you two would be uh, really good for each other. And man, a friendship took off and we have stayed connected through the course of, of our recovery journeys. And uh, Chief Dure, welcome to the No One Fights Alone podcast. We're so glad to have you on, man. Well, thanks. I'm honored to be here and absolutely. You know, I'm also glad to know that the payments that I'm giving you to give me a good name are <laughs> having the intended impact. So that's uh, fantastic to hear that, uh, that that's happening. You know, in all seriousness, yeah, this is an, um, such a great topic for us to talk about. And Brad, you are 100% correct. The feelings mutual. I'm so glad that we get to share this journey and the synergy that we have leads to things like what we're doing right now, which is fantastic. You know, you and I talked so much on the phone. We felt like we had known each other forever and we only just recently met in person. Yeah. So I had, I had occasion to do some uh, marketing workout in Phoenix and I just took a little road trip up to Prescott and uh, we got to hang out uh, most of the afternoon. It was uh, what such a blessing. So yeah, it was fantastic. Well, uh, Holger, let me just open the floor uh, without, you know, delaying anymore. Tell us a little bit about Holger, who who you are, how you got to where you're at, and uh, some of the hurdles you've had in your uh, your firefighter journey. I'm excited. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm currently the fire chief here in the city of Prescott. And I'm on my 28th year of my public safety career, 23 of those in the fire service. And uh, through that now, part of my story and part of my journey involves recovery. And I, I, I hope that I'm being very um, intentional in the way that I say that, which is Notice that, yes, addiction is part of that story as well, but recovery is really the way that I see this. And so um, just a quick, quick background on me in terms of my own journey is as my career was uh, going along, I found it more and more difficult to deal with the ongoing stresses of public safety. And it was very hard for me not to dip into maladaptive coping. Um, and that was through the use of alcohol. And uh, that then also led to other maladaptive coping, um, which impacted my family life significantly. Um, and it got to that place, right, where a lot of people in recovery say, this is my point of change. You know, we can talk about pre-contemplation and all those clinical terms. But, you know, of course, just like in any application, it feels much different in the moment. And I remember specifically where I was standing. I was standing right next to my wife at one of my kids' soccer games. And I said, no more. I need something in my life to change in a very drastic way. The irony of that, and I actually shared this very recently at one of my AA meetings, I didn't know that at the time, as much as I was exasperated and didn't know where to turn for help, that that term turn for help, literally, if I had turned around 180 degrees where I was standing physically at that moment, I would have looked 200 yards at the front door of an AA club in the city that I was living in at the time. I didn't find that out until I got out of treatment, came back and was looking for an AA community, you know, after I had entered recovery, but I was literally standing 200 yards away from the front door. Uh, so, you know, again, higher power uh, definitely was uh, kind of maybe, you know, playing a little bit of a joke on me at the time. Because uh, I said to her, I said, I just don't know where to turn for help. I literally said that to her. And, you know, had I turned around there, it would have been. But anyway, long story short, uh, that's sort of a really highlight. I'm now coming up on two years of sobriety. Uh, like many recovering alcoholics, I say I'm a grateful alcoholic. But I would say that recovery is not just about substance, right? I mean, this is not anymore about, yeah, I'd have, I, I'm lucky. I don't have cravings. I don't have, um, you know, this... Uh, absolute desire to drink. 
uh, it's more the lifestyle, right? It's living in 12 steps on a constant basis. It's constantly understanding and measuring what my impact is on others. It's making constructive amends in my past, but also in my present. You know, my sponsor has been amazing because one of the things that he said literally on the second day that I was working with him, he says, okay, well, let's go ahead and do a 10th step. And I said, man, I'm decent at math and I know that I'm supposed to do a first step and you want to do a 10th step. And he basically said, yeah, you don't, you know, if, if you've got a messy house, the last thing you want is to put more garbage in it. And it was such a great eye opener for me right away of what this lifestyle, if you integrate it right, gives you, it has nothing to do with alcohol. It has everything to do with how I put something positive into the world around me and how I'm able to deal with everyday stresses. You know, that's, uh, that's fascinating that the, the, the concept of actually help being so close and, and that, that really resonates with me because oftentimes for so many of us, uh, help is within arm's reach. And either we don't know it or we choose not not to, to reach out to that helpful concept. Austin, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree. And it's one of those things that a lot of people, it's in the promises and, and everything like that as well. But, you know, the obsession has been lifted. When you talk about not having cravings and you talk about all of those things, right? And, and what I tell my sponsees and what I've heard for years and years now is do this process and become a better person and you know, live life in, in honesty and, and everything like that. And the obsession to drink or use drugs, whatever, you know, someone is doing will be lifted from you. And people, in my experience, people have a very tough time with that thought process because they believe it's not possible to have that crazy thought that sits in the front of your brain day in and day out, 24 seven to just be gone. And, and it's possible. You're, you're living proof right there that it is possible. Well, let's take this, uh, let's, let's back up here a little bit and talk a little bit more about who Holger is. What, what actually were kind of the beginnings of arriving to this place of needing help? Are we talking about, you know, was firefighting trauma really, uh, stuff in your backpack full? Was that what's going on with you? Were you, you know, tell us a little bit, let's dive a little deeper into who that was who that guy is. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, it all ends with the beginning, uh, is kind of the way to put it. Um, you know, when I really started down the journey, I, I, I was getting more and more frustrated with myself because I started departing from my value set. And that was really what was corrosive to me personally. And that actually exacerbated my need for drinking. I didn't like who I had become. And so the only way that I could cover that up was with alcohol. And that was almost becoming a self-perpetuating cycle. It like created its own energy, you know, created its own weather, so to speak. Like you just mentioned, Austin, it was, you know, how can this obsession be removed if I start looking at it from a different perspective and really look at the framework of what got me here. And for me, one of those things was, uh, so the name Holger didn't just come out of the dictionary in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, I was adopted and I'm actually German uh, by, by birth, Austrian by descent. And I grew up for the first 12 years of my life in Germany. So English is my second language, came over when I was, like I said, 12 years old. And in that adoption story and in the backgrounds of what I learned and had learned actually as I started arriving into public safety, a lot of these things were already there, um, are the real root of where my addiction was seated. Uh, it was coping related to identity. It was coping with abandonment trauma. It was coping with childhood issues that I um, knew about, but until I really went into recovery, I didn't understand. I, I had no idea of the real depth and the magnitude of what was going on. That I had such a significant backpack, to use your term, Brad, of stuff that had nothing to do with my public safety life. I think that's, I guess, one of the messages that I want to get out there is that because identity and public safety are so closely connected, we sometimes forget the fact that there's a human behind that badge. And it, that human has experiences that are extraordinarily more impactful than that public safety career sometimes can seem to be that, you know, everything is about the job, right? Um, well, I would contend, especially in firefighting, I don't know how it is in law enforcement, but in firefighting, part of the reason why we're attracted to this career is actually because we bring that baggage with us. 
you almost have to have it as a prerequisite. You know, I, I, Holger, I, that, that resonates so deep with me. I actually just had a conversation recently with a young law enforcement officer who's struggling with alcohol. Uh, and that was one of the topics that we talked about. This, and one of the questions I posed to him is, do you know who you are outside of wearing that uniform? Do you, do you really know uh, what you stand for, what your identity is, uh, what your values are? Do you know who you are when you take that uniform off? And he struggled answering those questions. And I think it's a common theme within the first responder community that we're so, we adopt this identity that's, that's kind of given to us, uh, this heroic, really noble identity, but yet it leaves us lacking in other areas. Yeah. I would actually even contend that for some of us in public safety, the job itself is part of the maladaptive coping. You know, the, the draw to being a public safety responder is actually a coping mechanism, not a problem. Yeah. Yes. So true. Because, you, and for whatever, whatever, you know, whatever minutia reasons would be, you know, even the, the high risk taking, I mean, we get all sorts of uh, pleasure and, and rewards out of uh, this, this occupation. So yeah. Anyway, sorry. Keep let, let's keep rolling with that. Thanks. I I think that your point of the the childhood, you know, abandonment trauma, everything that you else had, everything else that you had going on, uh, and then saying, you know, most first responders do get into this field because of those things that have happened. I I have to say that 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 hasn't been talked about a ton on this podcast. But I mean, if you look at statistics, if you look at the the first responders that I've dealt with in mental health crisis or substance abuse crisis, a majority of them have some some type of trauma. And in their head, they said, I'm never going to let this happen to someone else. And, and I'm going to figure out a way to, to keep that from happening. So it's a very powerful thought process that you had going on there. Uh, and one that I think a lot of people can can understand and they feel the same way. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, like I mentioned, adoption is part of my my story, which is common with a lot of people in recovery. It has nothing to do with public safety, right? And so for me, what, what problems does adoption create? Well, self-identity, right? Who am I? Where do I come from? Wow. What's more powerful than a public safety career to give you an external identity that you don't have to explain to anybody? So agree. That was one of the bonds that, uh, that Holger and I had was that we were, uh, we were adopted kids and, uh, we found it, you know, it, it was just mm -hmm. fascinating how many similarities we had there, but I could not agree with you more that, uh, you find this identity piece when you're searching and oftentimes don't realize that that's even what you're looking for. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so that was a lot of what was, uh, going on at the time that, my recovery journey started and basically it had just like many of us in the program had gotten to a place where I was no longer able to maintain as the model would say, right. My life had become unmanageable. I just hadn't figured that out yet. And that unmanageability is what really started impacting. And I could not carry the 15 weights that I had put out there for myself that nobody put out there that I had to maintain in order to continue to live that lifestyle. And that unmanageability finally caught up with me. It caught up with me in my personal life. It caught up with me in my work life. It caught up with me in my own spiritual condition. It just had gotten to a place where enough was enough and I could no longer go on living the way that I was. And luckily, partially because I'm German, maybe that's because I'm stubborn. When I make up my mind that I'm going to do something, it's going to happen, you know? And so... You know, I didn't spend a lot of time, especially in the first 30 days of recovery, wondering if this was the right thing for me. You know, it took me about the first 15 minutes to have that conversation in my head. And then it was, here we come. You know, it, it was it was almost like, you know, it's like the, the, the alcoholic saying, watch this, I can do it better. You know, it's like, I'm going to do recovery really hard, you know, and I've had to learn over time that that's not the most sustainable approach, perhaps. Um, and that, you know, giving myself grace and pacing and sustainability, also important values in recovery. But yeah, that was definitely for me, the turning point to your question, Brad. And I am absolutely looking back on that when I thought my life was ending, sure. it was just beginning. So, so just for a little bit, just for the first responder context, as a firefighter, what were, what were some of the, uh, you know, some of the hurdles within that community? Because we, we talk a lot about specific disciplines within this and we, we spend uh, a lot of time talking about, you know, a 
law enforcement career, a firefighter career, you know, if you, if you were to drill down on some of the firefighter challenges that you had as a chief, uh, what were some of those things before we kind of move on to the uh, resilient piece of the conversation? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I think the easiest way to put this is that for me personally, you know, I was the number two in an organization when um, I entered recovery. And I'm the guy that's always helping others in the organization. It's not that I'm the first responder helping the person anymore. It's I've got to be the infallible leader that is all put together, dialed in, and I don't get to have the problem. Matter of fact, in my, you know, one of the ironies of my recovery story is in my leading up to recovery, I had actually convinced another member of the department to enter recovery as I'm needing to go into recovery myself, right? I mean, the absurdity of that statement is almost mind numbing to some extent when I think about it. And that was a barrier. I think chief officers in uh, both law enforcement and in fire also need to be part of this. We can't just continue to encourage the people on the floor. Hey, I need you to go to EAP. Hey, you know, there's resources for recovery. Hey, you know, you really, and then not do it ourselves. You know, and, and, and it's not like, you know, going to therapy as a chief officer is going to solve the problem. It was the hardest part for me on the professional side was being willing to let go of that armor and say, I need help, which means I got to put it all down. I got to put all of the assumptions, all of the self delusions down and look myself in the mirror, not as the chief officer that I am, but as a human being that I am in order for myself to be able to have sustainable leadership in this profession. And in this day and age, authenticity is such an important component of being a leader. Um, And if you're not authentic, your people in the organization will read that. And anything that you say about recovery, if you're not authentic about your own journey, uh, it'll fall flat on its face, in my opinion. Yeah, why we're on the leadership topic, because in at least on the treatment level side, I've seen more and more uh, chiefs of police and, and fire, everything like that start seeking treatment. But I want to talk a little bit about your fear. If there was any of being fired or, you know, the city coming in and saying, Hey, if you've got the issues, we can't have you in this position any anymore. Was there any of that going on? You know, not directly. And that's because I raised my hand early enough. I think had I gone on much longer, that would have absolutely been a problem because That's the balance, right? I think for anybody in recovery, and when I talk to other uh, people in recovery, both inside and outside the profession, there is a certain component of that where I have to be understanding of the fact that, yes, my role comes with a certain amount of responsibility. And that responsibility is a higher expectation because of my uh, rank than other members in the organization. You know, like in this, in in my role currently, that's not behavior that I could get away with for even a second. It's my, my duty, right, to take care of myself. I actually I say this a lot. For me personally, and this is not the case for everybody, where for me personally, I could not have been a fire chief in the fire chief role had I not gone into recovery. Recovery is what part, partially helps me be a successful fire chief. Until then, I thought it was academic education, experience on the street, building. No, that that's like the ticket to ride, right? But the, 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 the roller coaster that being in a leadership position like this entails requires you, you better have something else. And there's a lot of people, you know, like some people like to call them the normies, which I don't really subscribe to that because none of us, in my opinion, are normies. You know, they may have other coping mechanisms. For me, I needed, I needed recovery to help me absorb the stress, the strain, the frustrations and the joys of being a fire chief. This is an extraordinarily exhilarating job. There's um, so many positive things. I love being a fire chief, but I need the recovery principles to help me be successful in that so that I don't get off track. Now, in terms of the fear that you talked about, right? I think there's that's that could be a podcast unto itself of how do agencies and entities get away from well, that's what the ADA is for. Well, if you're relying on the ADA to help guide you uh, on organizational values around people living in recovery in your organization, you're starting from the wrong foundation. 
I mean, the ADA should be the backstop, right? That helps protect people that are actively engaged in, in a recovery from a condition that is covered by the ADA. That's the minimum standard. That's almost like saying, well, we're okay because, you know, the, the uh, FLSA is there to make sure we pay people appropriately. I mean, there's so much more that goes into compensation philosophy than federal minimum standards. It's the same, in my opinion, in terms of organizational culture. So in my role now, I make sure that I create an environment that balances those, right? The accountability to a taxpayer to make sure that I put people out there safely that aren't you know, intoxicated when they're performing very difficult duties, while at the same time creating a culture inside my organization and inside the city that I work with that is able to navigate the reality of what it means to be in recovery. You know, yeah, there's there's an accountability component. Sure, absolutely. But if we point an employee to the right recovery mechanism, that accountability that we're striving for as an employer comes with the program, right? And in, in order for us to face that stigma that we often talked about, you know, the only way that we can do that is to have real conversations and very difficult conversations. And so, for instance, as a leader, I have to be willing to take some calculated risks. You know, somebody might come into my office and say, I cannot believe you're not firing X, Y, Z. Well, if there's no policy violation and the only problem that they have is that they have a substance abuse problem, I can help them through that. But I can also set an accountability to where I make sure that our taxpayers are protected, that we're absolutely 100% transparent as an organization and we're following the policies, while also leaning 100% into supporting that member who had the absolute fundamental, like earth-shifting courage to say, I need help. You know, there's such a lesson to be learned there, I think, for us moving forward is Programs, brochures, pamphlets, they don't fix this issue. It's cultural change. It's leadership. It's risk-taking. It's being uncomfortable and sitting with some things that are very difficult for us to get through. But if we're going to shift the mindset in this profession, that mindset has got to change as well. You know, I think, I think for me, I, I think... I'd really like to spend a little bit of time and pick your brain in the context, maybe get a little deeper in the weeds on the leadership piece of, of recovery principles help you be a leader. That was one of the comments you made. I, I'm you generically, but what, what do those do for chief Duray? What, what do those, what do those really do to help your folks? I, I think the first thing right out the gate, right. Is one of those core principles that every situation I'm in, I have to take a assessment and an inventory of my impact. And it might be something that I don't want to hear. It might be something that I don't want to see. You know, it's the normal thing that in, in, I think the previous theory X theory Y leadership model of the infallible leader coming from the top of the mountain, always being correct and always being right. That's recovery thinking for me that shifted. You know, I am a fire chief that is willing to very publicly say I was wrong. I miscalculated. I need to readjust my effort. And when I get frustrated with somebody or a situation, the very first thing that I do now is to assess what my role is in it, right? Um, I had a great mentor in, in recovery tell me that ego is such an important thing for us to understand. You know, first, <laughs> give a quick story that leads right into this leadership so, you know, I learned early on, it's like, oh, uh, it's my ego that's causing me to drink. So if I just get rid of my ego, I won't have to drink anymore. Well, of course, we know that, you know, that that's not possible. But what this guy taught me in this conversation was he literally will physically walk into a room where he knows he's stressed about something and put his hand on the door frame because he's checking his ego at the door. He's not leaving it at the door. He's checking his ego at the door. And that idea in leadership is such an important principle that recovery allows me to see is, yeah, I'm the fire chief. Yes, ultimately those you know, decisions are mine and you could get into all of those flowery things you know, that, that sometime maybe get intoxicating in their own way in leadership. Check your ego at the door. You know? know that you have an impact on people. Even though your vision on change management might be the right idea, it has an impact on people and you have a responsibility to the people in your organization assess what that is that you can change. You can't change them, but you sure as heck can take a long look in the mirror every day and constantly assess 
where you're at. And that's one thing that in leadership that it helped. The other thing I would say is it helped me face difficult conversations in a much better way. I used to shy away from hard conversations. It was, it was, it was just like nauseating, right? Now, because I've had to have very difficult conversations with myself, with my relatives, with my friends, what I used to think was a difficult conversation is no longer a difficult conversation. As a matter of fact, I now see the value of them to be able to head off further, more difficult conversations. If I don't have the one that I'm having right now, I'm maybe feeling great in the moment, but boy, 10 months from now, when that comes back to haunt me, now it's a problem that I can't you know, overcome as a leader. And so those are two things I think that I could you know, bring out right away that have helped me personally in my leadership role here uh, in this current position. You know, I think that, tell me if I'm wrong here, Chief, but this probably stems from this AA being a program of brutal honesty, rigorous honesty, and what we find culminating as a result of that is it's much easier to have these honest conversations outward because we've had these conversations inward or with a sponsor or friend to friend, like some of the conversations you and I've had, uh, which, which once you have those, I personally have found it almost, almost too honest at times with people. I'm like, yeah, you're, your shit's not flying around here, buddy. I'm like, wow, where did that come from? Uh, it wasn't malicious. <laughs> it wasn't ill-intended. It wasn't uh, beating yeah. my chest with the ego, which I have been all those things before. Now mm-hmm. it's just, hey, man, this is who you are. You don't like it. Don't hang around me because this is now who I am. Uh, right. And I've exactly. I've learned to temper that a little bit, but early, fresh through uh, coming out of AA, it was like, hey, man, here, I don't like your beard, Austin. You know, <laughs> You know, those Neither kind, do I. Those kind of yeah. conversations. <laughs> no, but am I wrong there, Austin? You- yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that's you, you. People view it as blunt because I think it's socially, you know, people expect there to be, you know, some little bit of fluffing to everything, right? Where you know the old tactic was, I'm going to tell you what you did good first, and then lead into the tough conversation second, right? Like that's that's a old, old tactic used in, in the leadership sense. But I mean, I, I agree definitely with you, Holger is like, it allows you to have these tough conversations where you can head something off way down, down the road. Right. Cause you used to be like, well, maybe it'll just kind of work itself out. And what we learn in AA and in this program of self-reflection is like, man, I really wish somebody would have had this conversation with me five years ago. You know, I, I, I could have used that then I could have used that honesty instead they fluffed it up and, you know, fed that ego or, or whatever it may be. And like, look where some things ended up. Right. And so, but I also think with the, with the confines of, I mean, this isn't just being rude. These, these are honest conversations. Holger, tell me if I'm wrong here, but these are honest conversations that are actually partnered up, if not married up with love and grace and empathy and, and compassion mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, words that are sometimes foreign to a leadership conversation, you know, do this because I said, yeah, you know, versus do this because I care. Is that fair? Yeah. Well, and I would, even, yeah, I would even go one step further. Do this because I love you. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it, it, it's, I, I can, when I say authenticity, right. I cannot be a leader without being that engaged in the people that I lead. Because how is sacrifice and leadership not exactly the same thing? Well, you sacrifice for people and things that you love. And I have to sacrifice my comfort to have uncomfortable conversations, not because I think it's going to be better for me, right? But because that is the way that I can express that platonic, but still love for the people that I work with in my organization and ultimately for the organization and its value for the community. Else, I am not courageous. You know, that that courage, right, that especially in public safety, sometimes thought about just on, you know, the scene of an incident. Really, that courage needs to come into the conversations that we have with each other on a daily basis. That's where it's so much harder to be courageous. But it's that courage that comes from how deeply I care for the people that I work with. That's something I had to come to terms with. And honestly, I still come to terms with it every day. 
in my roles right now of, of Austin, what you just said, oh, maybe it'll just work itself out. Maybe I'll just watch it a little bit longer. Maybe, no. I know myself as part of the recovery process that I am not a horrible mechanical human being. You know, I care almost too much, which means that when I engage in difficult conversations, that comes with me. I don't have to leave that at the door. I can still be caring and I can still be empathetic and compassionate and have difficult conversations. As a matter of fact, I can have them probably a little more effectively than some people that might not have that skill set. But if I avoid them, then I become inauthentic, disingenuous, and I'm not doing that person a favor. Yeah. Well, so I want to jump into something here that just came to my mind. And uh, this is going to be a huge one for the people that listen to to this podcast. So you you talked about going to treatment earlier, right? And I want to know, you probably had this idea uh, built up in your head after you had completed or you, as you were you were on your way out of what you were going to do, what your life was going to look like. You had everything nailed down, probably felt the best you had in years, right? Can you, can you talk about that mm -hmm. transition out and maybe some of the things that you didn't expect to happen and some of the mm -hmm. struggles that you may yeah. have faced and then yeah. how you overcame those struggles as well and kept on the path? Because that's where you lose people, right? Is when they, they feel great when they're leaving, whether it's therapy or treatment or whatever it may be, and then they lose themselves, you know, as the further they are yeah. out of it. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things. At the time that I was entering into treatment, I was in some of the best shape of my life. I know, seems seems so weird, right? I mean, at the height of my addiction, I was actually physically probably more capable than I had been in quite a few years. Um, I entered into a weight loss program purposefully. Granted, you know, just like any other maladaptive coping, that was part of it. Um, I was coping with the weight loss as well, and I was what seemed to be on my side, you know, hitting on all fifteen cylinders, so to speak, and. One of the hard parts that I had to understand is that my, the only way that I could be successful in recovery was to take steps that were A, against my instinct, because my instinct has gotten me into the situation that I was in. So basically do the opposite of what you want to do. And B, I had to do some very difficult decision-making. One of the decisions that I made early on in my recovery was to uh, leave the job that I had been in. That job actually had been in part contributing to where I had found myself. Notice I'm not saying it was the fault. It was not. The, the, the recovery is mine to own. But I also noticed that that environment was no longer serving me. And it definitely was not going to be supportive of my recovery. You know, those stresses that had partially contributed to it, they weren't going to magically go away. And I had to make the very difficult decision without plan B with what's going to come next to say, I'm stepping, I'm taking a leap of faith. Universe, watch out. I hope the life jacket's on. And that was probably the most powerful thing that I could have done to actually give me the next step. Because had I held on, had I like trusted my instincts from the past, which was to be self-protective and to be cocooned, it would have not ended well. It probably would have not been a successful recovery journey. And that took a lot of work. That was scary. That was staring at the ceiling in the middle of the night, being literally scared to death of how the heck am I going to put, you know, uh, food on the table, um, let alone my professional um, self-identity, you know, confidence, you name it. And what I didn't realize is that by letting that go, I could see all the other things that were around me that I couldn't see before. One of those things actually, frankly, was Brad and I meeting uh, came as part of, of some of that discovery. You think I'd ever be in a situation where that would have happened had I not taken these leaps of faith? Because it's like, yeah, somebody's suggesting that you go talk to this crazy guy from Oklahoma. And um, one of the best things I ever did, right? Because instantly I had a battle buddy that helped me in that early recovery. Had I not let go of that before, I would have taken that suggestion as witchcraft. And there's no way that, no, I'm not, I'm not reaching out to this guy, right? It's just one little microcosm. The other thing then is at that time I was in Colorado. I'm now in Arizona, you know, and it required my wife who was not exactly happy with me at the time. Uh, I don't know if that resonates with any other recovery stories, 
leaving her job and packing a U-Haul and heading out of state. I mean, it doesn't get much more, well, here comes the fatal fall forward than that. It takes that kind of conviction, in my opinion. I know that my story is unique to myself. And so now I'm not telling other people in early recovery, quit your job. Actually, it's quite the opposite. It's align yourself with who you really are because there's other people in recovery that it may very well be that that job is exactly what's going to make them successful in early recovery. What I am saying is in early recovery, do an honest assessment of the environment and all the other factors that are in your life. And if there's anything that you feel is going to be a detriment to your recovery, if you want recovery bad enough, you better take a long, hard look to evaluate if that is something that is going to continue to serve you in this new lifestyle, because this is permanent. This is not one of these things, well, maybe after 90 days. No, stop. It is, you either is or you either ain't. And if it doesn't serve you, back the heck out. So that's what I ended up having to do. That was probably the hardest things. I would say looking back on it, it's also the thing that while at the time it felt like I was kicking myself, made me the most successful in, in early recovery and now in continued recovery. So, you know, I think that's an absolutely powerful message that oftentimes doesn't get talked about enough, which is removing things that are preventative to your health. The conversation seems to trend more towards how do I deal with it without removing it from my world, mm-hmm. my life, my existence, because I, I want to keep it around as some sort of safety blanket or pacifier of mm-hmm. sorts. But yet the, the, the messaging that you're saying here, Holger, is if it doesn't work, if it's, if it's causing you pain or if it's causing you some type of a hurdle, reevaluate it, if not get it out, right? That, yeah. Is that what I hear you yeah. saying? Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, in, in my almost two years in the program, I've not yet run into a single person at a meeting that has told me this, let's say, hypothetical conversation, where somebody's sitting in a meeting and saying, I'm 20 years sober and I did everything that the program told me to do and I'm off worse. You know, I, I hear all of the other stories, you know, yeah. it's yeah. At the time, it might seem like the most counterintuitive thing to make that blanket that you've got on uh, go away. But holy moly, it's exactly what's been smothering you, not keeping you warm. There is a big difference between comfort and strangulation. And, you know, that is one of those things that I think people in early recovery really need those guides around them. Uh, you know, that's why I think when, when we tell people, you know, in the first 90 days, you better not be making any decisions by yourself. You know, it wasn't like I sat there and, you know, sort of like, oh, you know what I should do is I should leave where I'm currently working. Sounds like a great idea. You know what? Let me send an email. You know, that was a conversation with my sponsor, my therapist, my wife, friends. It was well thought out. It was well, you know, researched. But it was the right decision for me, even though it felt so awful at the time. I want to transition us back to, with the time remaining here, I've got a couple of things that I want to try to accomplish. And, and, and I feel like Austin uh, does as well. But I want to circle us back to something you mentioned early on in the conversation, which is a step 10. What is it about step 10 now on a daily basis that keeps you on a level plane? Uh, you made reference to it, and I know exactly what you're talking about. But I think for the purposes of our listeners out here, this would be really good to explore a little bit and just say, here's, here's what, here's what that looks like on a, on a, sometimes for me, it's almost a minute by minute basis of something's going on here. What's, what's, what's going on, which is the self-evaluation piece, right? Something's, something's making me feel weird. Austin. Did you have something on that? Well, first off, let's go back to step 10 and what it is, right? Because most people sure. won't know what it is. So that's it's continuing to take personal inventory when you are wrong, promptly admit it, right? That That's a huge, it's yeah. a call to action. That's the way it was explained to me. So from there, let's let's jump into it now. Yeah, no, I'm glad you, you put that foundation out there, Austin, because where it starts for me is resentments, right? Taking personal inventory in the sense of the program is looking at resentments and it's that idea that every day I'm going, looking at the things that are causing me problems and making me, 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 right? Uh, that invert curve. And 
as it is in the greater program and the other steps, it's really writing down and seeing where the patterns and the themes are, right? Because as we know, after you do that for a while, you start recognizing there's such a commonality to the patterns of your resentments that lead to the character defects that part of the program helps you understand, examine, and deal with. And, and so for me, it's that constant willingness, that call to action, that being open to the conversation that perhaps what's happening in your world that's causing you a resentment is ultimately at the root of one of your character defects, that the first thing I should do as a person in recovery is constantly say, what's my role in this? And if there is something that I have done that's negatively impacting somebody, that I need to take positive action, whether that's through the form of an apology, a change in my behavior, or an ongoing willingness to be open to learning about myself, that is what ultimately the core of that 10th step is. And that's where I got the value. Kind of like I said, you know, if you're trying to clean your house up, why, why let more garbage collect, right? Because over the years, that becomes an insurmountable mountain of crap that even though at the time, it seems like just such a small little thing. Uh, give you an example of this. So in one of my check-ins with my sponsor one day, he's like, okay, all right, well, we're at the 10 steps. So what, you know, what do you want to talk about? And I'm like, you know, I really don't have anything today. Things are going really well. And he kind of pauses for a little bit and he goes, oh, is that so? <laughs> and and just like just like Brad just said, it happens all the time, every day, constantly. And he goes, "All right, well, you're gonna have to try a little harder." And I said, "Okay, well, we had just moved into the house here in Arizona, and my wife put a cat tree in the living room, and I'm like, man, that looks chintzy. I hate it. I don't want it there, you know." And I started kind of like in my little ruminating alcoholic brain going. Ah, uh, you know, her, her, her. Why can't she see that this is a nice living room? You know, I'm just starting to steam. Well, the 10th step makes me sit there and go, well, what character defect is that impacting? Oh, okay. It might have something to do with the fact that when other people come over, I want them to feel like I've got a nice living room. Does that have anything to do with her cat tree? No. Because <laughs> it might be the cat tree today, it might be something completely different tomorrow that has nothing to do with my wife. But here I'm totally stuck on, oh, it's my wife and it's her crazy cat lady tendencies that are put in this cat tree in my living room that's causing me absolute heartache. And see, she doesn't understand. That's my problem. And here I am, right, in the middle of this conversation with my sponsor when five minutes before that I had said, Oh, everything's going great. I have no resentments in my world. Look at me. I'm a person in recovery. Suddenly I'm like, oh man, I see what you did there. Oh, got something to work on there. You know, one of the great things about about that that small, maybe seemingly trivial story is that you pile a, you know, a dozen of those together or, you know, 40, 50 of those together. And next thing you know, you have this monstrosity of a resentment or monstrosity of a, th those are how the little things, and that's what pile up together, uh, bring you to winding your clock so tight to where you just can't, can't even, can't even think straight. So Holger, as we kind of finish up here, man, this has been absolutely wonderful having you on and, 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 telling your story and imparting wisdom, uh, especially the leadership piece. Uh, Austin, I don't think we talk about the leadership enough on the podcast. I think we should explore that a little bit more. But as we kind of leave out of here, Holger, I want to kind of afford you the opportunity to impart kind of the the wisdom of, for those listening out here, if they are, you know, looking at, hey, I'm upside down or they need a direction or just whatever tidbits of even even on the leadership side, if there's a chief out there that that is listening to this and says, uh, you know, what what do I need to do to get healthy? What is it that I need to do to move forward? And how do I challenge myself? What would be some of the parting wisdom on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think three things. The first thing is common I think to recovery, and we say this all the time, which is, well, how's that working for you? You know, if you don't think that recovery is going to be what, what solves the problem, give it a shot. You've tried all these other things and you've definitely experimented a lot with your addiction. And the reason why the conversation is being had in the first place and why you find yourself in recovery or a treatment is because it wasn't working for you. And at least allow the objectivity of the fact that there's many people successfully living in recovery to get you past the, is this just drinking Kool-Aid? 
because frankly, addiction is drinking the Kool-Aid. It's not that AA or recovery-minded principles are Kool-Aid. Nobody's going to say, you know, and I'm, I'm personally not the kind of person in recovery that says you've got to do it exactly this way. And I know there's people like that. And, and, and if it works for them, that's what's important. But for me, the thing that I would impart to somebody looking at recovery is just like personal finance, personal recovery is personal, which means unless you are departing from the core root of the idea, brutal honesty, making sure that the outcome is you stay sober and you are able to sustain that, then that personal recovery journey is something that you get to design as long as you're willing, right? So the first thing you got to do is be willing to step into it and find out if maybe this is something that's going to work for you. You know, if it doesn't work, you can always go back to your addictive lifestyle because I guarantee if you don't do anything about it, it'll still be there for you. The other piece that I would say is have the curiosity. There's a couple of things that I'm doing now that have completely surprised me. Uh, I ended up being the lead in a musical. Uh, you think that two years ago, somebody would have said, you're going to be a lead in a musical. I would have been like, you are, you are drinking more than I'm drinking. You have a problem, you know? Well, guess what? Being a lead in a musical keeps me sober. You know, people in recovery, uh, and I would say even doubly so, people that are in public safety and recovery need to constantly have challenges. We need to be moving. We need to constantly test our boundaries and, and be adventurous. The adventure that is waiting for you in recovery is so amazing that you have no idea even right at that moment when you're like, especially in those first 90 days of darkness is what I like to call it, what that adventure could bring you, you know? And, and that's something that I think I want to encourage people with is you're going to find some things that'll blow your flipping mind. You have no idea what you're going to get yourself into. And then I think the third thing uh, to kind of close off on in terms of my role it's just a continued reminder of the folks in public safety and leadership positions of our responsibility to speak on this. I am stepping into this podcast as part of that responsibility. I owe it to my profession to change the narrative. Forget about the stigma. We have to change the narrative. We have to change the mindset, the mindset that this is not something that we can live with, that we have to exile people that have you know, alcoholism or addiction problems. Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, the entire organization, when I say not, I'm not talking about my organization, I'm talking the industry. The industry is sick. The entire industry of public safety has a problem. Uh, and the only way that we can face that is to be honest about ourselves and, and actually say, there's something we can do about that, you know, and we have to come to terms with that. And the only way that we can do that is for people that have the absolute blessing and responsibility to be in positions like myself to lean into that like crazy because that's the only way we're going to be able to fix it man though that was that was amazing first off uh, that that last little segment there just it, that was really well put and and i first off i, I want to add in something that i want to honor the work that you've done on yourself uh in this community in in the recovery community uh specifically there's there's a, a habit that we fall into when we speak and we share and we do these things. And, you know, that's, that's to, to revel on the war stories a little bit. Hey, look, here's my qualifier of why I'm so fucked up and why I earn <laughs> yeah. this seat. And now I am going to force, well, look how amazing I am now, right? Like I'm in recovery and all this bad stuff has happened to me. And now I'm going to force feed you the solution and what my solution right. is, and this is the way you do it, and that's the only way, because it worked for me, and look how fucked mm -hmm. up I was. I wanna honor the fact of the personal work yep. that you've put in that you did not do that, that you you sh you mm -hmm. shared on what's important, on values, on beliefs, on honesty, and you didn't go down that deep, dark road of what earned you that seat in the chair, right? Like, you know, that we, I, that's, to me, that means that you are doing the work. You are putting in the effort. And I've seen this in for the last decade, right? I've seen this kind of habit. And I was mm -hmm. one of those people, right? When I was a year or two sober, I tended to go towards like, yeah, your shit stinks, but mine was way worse. So sit down, shut up, take the take the cotton out of your ears yeah. and stick it in your mouth kind of a thing, you know? And um uh, so I, I just want to thank you for that message that you put out to the, to the people that listen, because that's what they need to hear, in my opinion. That's the new age mm -hmm. of this is, you know, this is your personal journey and find what works for you and just be a good, 
person. You know, that's that's very important, yeah. and people lose that fact sometimes. Holger, I'm gonna I'm gonna I, I agree with Austin. That is a powerful, powerful message to kind of close this out. And as I was writing notes, this is try something, try something aside from what you're already doing. Be curious. Uh, and then we have a duty and responsibility to change. What what a powerful three uh, bullet points of messaging to this uh, community, recovery community, but also to the first responder industry as a whole. That was powerful, Hoger. Amazing. Brother, thank you so much for coming on. I love you. Love your thank message. You. I, I, I wish you the best. And uh, I appreciate everything about you. Appreciate your friendship and your conversations are so good. I know on a personal level, uh, I wish everybody in the recovery community out there to have friends like Holger Dure. Well, thanks for the opportunity and the time and the platform. This is such important work and that implies that we have to do it. We can't sit idly by. So having these conversations is a great opportunity to do just that. And I just can't thank you guys enough. Chateau Recovery is a 16 bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-4193. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.